Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's Christmas Eve episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Literati. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids delivered right to your door. And for a limited time, you can go to literati.com slash Peter and get 25% off your first two orders and pick your kids book club gift today. Before I get started with today's podcast, I do want to wish everybody who is listening a Merry Christmas. And in fact, I recorded a special Christmas video message that I really encourage everybody to watch. As soon as you're finished listening to this podcast, if you haven't already done so, check out my video, A Christmas List. It's up on my social media platforms. You can see it on Instagram. Hey, if you haven't subscribed or followed me on Instagram, I got about 65,000 followers so far, but well short of the 400 plus I have on my YouTube channel or now 315,000 on Twitter. So a lot of people are still not following me on Instagram. Maybe this is a reason to do it. You can also see the video on my Facebook page, obviously, which uh, owns Instagram. But also, I uploaded the video to shift clips. If you remember, I've encouraged everybody who is subscribing to the Shift Report, which is my main YouTube channel that does have over 400,000 subscribers, I've encouraged everybody to also subscribe to Shift Clips where we're putting out a lot of shorter videos that we're not also putting on the main channel. So far, 4,000 people have subscribed to Shift Clips, which is only about 1% of the people who subscribe to the main YouTube channel. So if you haven't already subscribed to Shift Clips, this is a reason to go visit Shift Clips and subscribe because that is the channel where I uploaded my special Christmas message. And everybody is going to get a kick out of this. You'll get a few laughs. I had a lot of fun making it. You'll have a lot of fun watching it. And then after you do, share it with your friends. I think it really makes a good uh, kind of Christmas card to send around to introduce some of your friends to to Peter Schiff and, 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 and my channel and my podcast and things like that. So definitely check it out if you haven't already done so as soon as you're finished listening to today's podcast. Now, when I recorded my last podcast, I had assumed that Donald Trump was going to be very quick to put his John Hancock on the new $900 billion stimulus bill. And of course, that bill was actually half of the bill or not even quite because it was combined with a $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill. So, uh, $2.3 $2.3 trillion was the total package, of which $900 billion was specifically for COVID relief. But then Donald Trump 
held a press conference and he basically threatened to veto the entire bill, A, because it wasn't big enough. Donald Trump was upset that individuals were only getting $600. He didn't think that was enough money. He said that individuals should get $2,000 a person because people really need the help. And if $600 is good, well, $2,000 is better. So Trump is basically saying he wants a bigger stimulus. He wants even larger deficits. Now, of course, he also did attack some of the pork in the bill, specifically a lot of the foreign aid that he's against. And he mentioned a lot of other uh, pork barrel spending that is included in the bill. The problem is that this pork is actually part of the omnibus spending bill. It's not necessarily tied to the COVID relief. It's in that $1.4 trillion omnibus bill. The problem is Donald Trump has signed one omnibus spending bill after another. I mean, he's been president now for almost four years. He's had plenty of opportunities to uh, veto these omnibus spending bills, yet he keeps on signing them. So why is he making a big deal now? He's now objecting to all this pork barrel spending that he didn't object to in the past. So he's trying to pretend that he actually cares about all this, when in reality, he doesn't care at all. What he's trying to do is kind of position himself as the hero of the little guy, trying to get more money for the people and less money Uh, for special interests or foreign aid. But what he's really doing is stabbing a lot of Republicans in the back because it's the Republicans in the Senate and in the House who at least were pushing back on the Democrats' desire to have a much bigger stimulus bill. And in fact, he had Mnuchin in there negotiating this whole thing, and he you know, sat quietly back. He wasn't pushing for uh, $2,000 a person. So he allowed this bill uh, to pass both the House and the Senate, before announcing that he was going to potentially veto it because he's upset that more money isn't going to uh, individuals, when the main reason for that is because Republicans in Congress were opposed to the even larger deficits than the deficits that are going to be produced by the stimulus bill that they thought they had no choice but to sign because obviously, you know, they don't want to be the Grinch that steals Christmas and they don't want to stand in the way between individuals and uh, their, their, uh, their Christmas checks coming uh, for stimulus. But of course, the Democrats love this. I mean, Democrats want to give out as much free money as possible. And in fact, as soon as Donald Trump basically threw down his gauntlet, you know, you had Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They were all over this. And they were like, yeah, yeah, let's do it, right? Let's do $2,000 a person, knowing that the only members of Congress that would oppose to this would be some of the Republicans. And of course, in order to get it done now, because the bill was already passed, Pelosi says, oh, we're going to bring it up uh, in the House uh, for unanimous consent, and let's just up the size of the checks to $2,000. Again, all this is politics, because she knows that she's not going to get unanimous consent from the Republicans, because there are still some Republicans that oppose all this deficit spending. But now the Republicans look like the bad guys, and of course now the Republicans are at odds with Trump. Right, because Trump is saying, hey, I want more money uh, for the people. And now you have some Republicans who aren't going along. But again, in case there was any lingering doubts about where Donald Trump stands, he is not a conservative. He does not want to shrink government. He is a populist. He is for big government, big deficits, spending. He just played lip service to the idea that, oh, I, I, I want to stand in the way of all this pork barrel spending. Where was he? They've been spending on money on pork his entire presidency. He hasn't said anything. I mean, why didn't Donald Trump actually veto something? He wants to pretend he's going to veto. He's not going to veto. He, where, he hasn't never used that veto pen. He doesn't even know where it is. So I'm sure at the end of the day, my initial instinct when I recorded my last podcast was true. Trump is going to sign this. He's not going to veto it or pocket veto it. I mean, maybe he's going to try to grandstand and act as if, you know, he's trying 
trying to get more money for the people or he's somehow against all this other spending that was in this omnibus spending bill. Meanwhile, it's in every omnibus spending bill. He has had no problem with signing in the past. The markets, though, didn't really react much to all of this uh, gamesmanship going on in Washington. It was a pretty quiet day today in trading, a mixed day. Uh, It was also a shortened day to a shortened week. They ended trading today at one o'clock New York time for Christmas Eve. Of course, the markets are closed tomorrow for Christmas Day. And of course, then they're closed for the weekend. So we've got a long weekend where there's not going to be any trading. It was pretty quiet across the board. You know, the dollar was a little weaker on the day, but a little stronger on the week. Gold, a little stronger on the day, but a little bit weaker on the week. Uh, Bond prices gained back a bit after having some losses during the prior week. You know, I wanted to point out uh, something that I said on, not my last podcast, I think it was two podcasts ago, but somebody wrote me an email to correct a mistake that I made, and I wanted to address it because I had a valid point, and I hadn't actually really explored it when I did the podcast, so I want to get into it now, and that is the effect of a weak dollar on corporate earnings. And what I said is that it really doesn't benefit U.S. companies because to the extent that they lower prices in you know, because the dollar is down, they, they don't really earn more money. I mean, they just earn more dollars, but those dollars have a lower value because they're earning fewer euros. If they end up cutting their euro price, for example, yes, they earn more dollars, but they earn fewer euros. Well, this listener pointed out And his point is correct that, well, if an American company is able to lower their price due to the fact that the dollar has weakened and so now they can cut, let's say, the euro price of their product, that would give them a competitive advantage over uh, other competitors who were not lowering their prices and that by lowering prices, they would end up selling more units, right? So volume would pick up. So even though they would get less for each unit, they would sell more units and so ultimately have higher earnings. And yes, That is a valid point, but again, it doesn't contradict what I said about putting your products on sale. Every merchant knows when they reduce prices and have a sale, they're going to sell more stuff. I mean, that's why they put stuff on sale, because they're going to move more merchandise. But getting less money and selling more doesn't necessarily mean greater profits. I mean, a lot of merchants would rather not have to mark down their merchandise and get full price, maybe not move as much stuff, but have higher margins on what they sell. But you also have to look at the other effects on businesses of a weak dollar on their cost structure. Because first of all, If I am a U.S. company and I'm selling goods in Europe and the dollar goes down, my production costs are going to go up, right? Initially, it's going to be costs of goods that I have to import or that are, you know, globally, uh, you know, it's a globally competitive market. For example, raw materials, right? The dollar weakening could immediately translate into higher raw material prices for me relative to what my competitors are paying for their raw materials. Remember, even if those commodities are traded in dollars, if the dollar goes down, then my foreign competitors are now buying those ingredients, those inputs at a better deal because now they're paying with their appreciated currency. So uh, my raw material costs will go up, as will the costs of any imported components that are needed in my domestic manufacturing. I often talk about Callaway Golf as an example of a company that supposedly manufactures golf clubs in the United States, except they don't really manufacture the clubs, they assemble the clubs. What they do is they import the grip, the shaft, and the head, which are all made in different countries. They bring all those parts in the United States, and then they assemble the finished golf club, and then they sell it. Well, obviously, if the dollar goes down, even though that club is assembled, domestically, the cost of their imported components, bringing all that stuff into the United States could go up. And so that is going to impact their margins. But also on a longer term, to the extent that a weakening dollar helps drive up the domestic cost of living, which it will do, then other U.S. dollar costs will eventually go up because of pressure from 
the people who were paying. For example, if I have a space that I'm renting and now my landlord's costs are going up, uh, utilities, insurance, uh, other costs that are being affected by inflation, those rates are going up. Well, my rent's going to go up. I mean, the rent may already have some type of bump that's tied to some type of price index, but when the lease uh, expires and I have to negotiate a new lease, if there's been a lot of inflation, well, you know, my landlord's going to want more rent in order to renew that lease. Also, employees, even though local employees are paid in dollars, right, and so those wages are not going up as the dollar goes down, if employees' cost of living is going up, if it's more expensive to eat and pay their utilities or their transportation, now my workers are going to have to demand higher salaries in order to continue providing me with their labor. So ultimately, a weakening currency is going to put upward pressure on domestic wages. So there's all sorts of ways that a weak currency ends up backfiring and hurting the domestic industry. And another way it hurts, and obviously right now with artificially manipulated interest rates, it's not as immediately apparent, but it will be over time, is that when countries have a strong currency, they generally can borrow at a lower rate of interest because people are willing to loan money in a currency that's going to hold its value or you know not depreciate. And so generally, if you're a country with a sound currency, you can have lower interest costs, which benefits your local manufacturers, which have a lower cost of capital relative to businesses uh, in countries that have a higher rate of inflation and a weaker currency, where they're now having to compensate creditors with an even higher rate of interest for exposing them to the risks of uh, loss of purchasing power. So that's another part of the the manufacturing uh, input cost structure that works against the manufacturers or the businesses that are operating from a country where the currency is losing value relative to countries where the currencies are strong. That's why if you look back, you know, historically, look at uh, West Germany, you know, before the unification, look at Japan, you know, look at the years where the Deutschmark and the yen were really, really strong currencies, yet both Germany and Japan enjoyed very, very strong straight surpluses the entire time their currencies were gaining in value. So it wasn't like they, they a strong currency was somehow kind of um, a barrier they had to overcome. It was the strong currency that really kept their capital costs down and allowed their businesses to invest in manufacturing and, and other uh, productivity enhancing investments that they were able to make uh, because they had access to lots of capital at lower rates. But I did want to thank that listener, I forget who it was, uh, for pointing out that I really glossed over the fact that by you know lowering your price, you would sell more uh, units. Because of course, if you couldn't sell more units, then you wouldn't lower your price, right? What's the point of lowering your price if it's not going to increase sales? If you're going to sell the same amount of stuff, well, then you might as well leave your prices alone. For kids, it's never easy to find the right gift. I mean, we're always slyly listening for clues so that we know what they want. Of course, this time of year, they give you a list, and so you know exactly what they want at Christmas time. But this year has been kind of crazy, and the little ones have been practically yelling what they want. They want adventure, they want laughter, they want camaraderie, they want some normalcy. That's why they need Literati Kids. Literati Kids is a subscription book club that sends five beautiful children's books to your door each month handpicked by experts. In fact, I just recently got my shipment. I'm looking at some of the books. I've got Roscoe Riley Rules. I've got uh, Aliens in the Pocket. Here's another one, How Do Animals Talk? In fact, I really like these kind of books because there's all these little interactive flaps uh, that kids get to open and all interesting pictures and more things that they can read behind the flaps. And you know, when you're reading to your kids, it really makes the experience better if your kid can interact with the book. Every month, you'll get a box of five expertly chosen kids' books with themes like mystery, adventure, STEM, and history. These are soul-enriching books handpicked by leaders in child education. 
In addition to these incredible books, your child will receive artwork from world-renowned artists, personalized stickers, and other fun goodies in each monthly box. You won't get this kind of expert curation anywhere else. Gift subscriptions are available for one, three, six, or 12 months of books. It's a great way to keep the holiday magic going throughout all of 2021, whether you're gifting to a niece, a grandson, a friend's child, or your own kids. And unlike with other book clubs, Literati Kids lets you try before you buy. Keep only the books you love, return the rest for free. You know, with so many kids out of school, Literati is working to get books into the hands of families who don't have libraries and educational materials of their own. If you have some of your own books, you can even donate books you already own, and Literati will match every one you send. So go to literati.com slash Peter for 25% off your first two orders and pick your kids book club gift today. Remember, no one else has kids books clubs like these. Only at literati.com slash Peter can you get 25% off your first two orders and receive five incredible kids books curated by experts delivered to your door every month. That's literati.com slash Peter. Make your little one's holiday season unforgettable this year. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But I want to finish up this Christmas Eve podcast by really talking about what I think is the bigger story of the week, and that's the one that relates to Bitcoin. The SEC dropped the bombshell the other day that it was filing a suit, a lawsuit against Ripple for selling unregistered securities. And I read through the entire complaint which you can read online. And I would suggest that any of you uh, uh, Bitcoin hodlers uh, give this a little read and, and have an idea what you potentially are going to be up against. Anyway, if you read through this uh, complaint, it's a pretty strong case that the SEC makes that Ripple is in fact a security. And if you read the complaint, they do reproduce the SEC definition of a security, which I will read now. It says, the definition of a security under the Securities Act includes a wide range of investment vehicles, including investment contracts. Now, what's an investment contract? Investment contracts are instruments through which a person invests money in a common enterprise and reasonably expects profits or returns derived from the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others. So that's what makes something a security. Now, how does that relate to Ripple? Well, why do people buy Ripple? Well, they buy Ripple because they think that the price of Ripple is going to go up, right? So everybody buying Ripple does so with the expectation that they're going to profit from their purchase, right? They're not buying it just to use it, right? They're buying it because they think they're going to make a profit, right? That is different than just buying a good that you consume or buying a service. You're buying something with the expectation of a profit. So that's half the definition of a security. Now, the other half is that that profit is somehow tied to the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of other people. Now, with respect to Ripple, it's very clear that the Ripple company is providing services that are designed to increase the price of Ripple and therefore produce the gains that those people who are buying Ripple are expecting uh, to, to receive. 
right? Because all these Ripple tokens were created by the Ripple company and they keep uh, selling Ripple into the market. They've raised over a billion dollars. I forget the exact amount, it's in the complaint, but they've raised a ton of money creating and selling Ripple and the people who have bought Ripple have done so with the expectation of profiting from the appreciation of Ripple. And obviously the Ripple Corporation is trying to engender that appreciation through the work that they're doing, uh, through marketing and through promotion and other efforts. And this is a a, a mutual common enterprise. Uh, Everybody who owns Ripple is going to profit from the work and the endeavors of the people who are working for Ripple. And as a result of that, Ripple should have registered these tokens as securities. But of course, had they done that, it would have made it far more difficult for uh, Ripple to market uh, you know, its tokens. And so they decided not to do that. And they ignored maybe uh, letters that they had gotten to pass from the SEC. And they're claiming that, well, no, this is not a security, it's a currency. And, and therefore, we don't have to register it. Well, the problem is, I think they are going to lose uh, that argument based on the way the SEC defines security and the fact that, you know, they basically run the courts. I mean, you're basically on their turf when you try to claim that it's not. And I know, I mean, I ran up against the SEC on this exact issue myself years and years ago related to the Perth Mint. When I first started selling Perth Mint certificates for my broker-dealer, at some point, the SEC came to me and basically said, hey, you're selling unregistered securities. And they were basically threatening to fine me or sanction me because I was selling unregistered securities. And they said that the Perth Mint certificates were securities. And I had to go out and hire an independent attorney who wrote an opinion basically that said that they're not securities, which clearly they weren't because all Perth Mint certificates are is like a warehouse receipt evidencing ownership. So the Perth Mint is basically storing your gold and then they give you a certificate that says, we got your gold. I mean, the certificates are not marketable. You can't take that certificate and exchange it with somebody else. All you could do is take it back to the Perth Mint and redeem it and and get your gold or you can sell it and get your cash. Uh, But clearly, uh, the Perth Mint was not doing anything to influence the price of gold. uh, And your gold in no way was commingled really with anybody else's. It was, you know, you just own gold and it was there. So the SEC basically backed away from their allegations once I was able to really show them uh, that a certificate that simply evidenced ownership of gold stored in the facility was clearly not a security. But the way I read the laws and the way I understand how Ripple operates, I think they have a very, very strong case against Ripple. And ultimately, I think they're going to lose. And what does that also mean? That means that a lot of these exchanges that allow the trading of cryptocurrencies are going to delist Ripple, I think, in advance of a decision. I think they could read uh, the complaint and realize that there's a pretty good chance that Ripple is going to be ruled a security. And so if you're Coinbase, right, you can't sell unregistered securities. So basically you have to stop uh, Ripple from trading on your platform. And so I think their liquidity in Ripple is really going to dry up. And that's why Ripple is getting ripped apart now in price. In fact, over the last seven trading days, Ripple has lost about 60% of its market value. And clearly I think there's a lot more downside to come in that currency. And of course it's dragged down a lot of other big name cryptocurrencies that have really been hit uh, over the past week as well. Look at Chainlink. That one is down 23%. Stellar down 24%. Bitcoin SV down 15%. EOS uh, down almost 20%. NEM down just over 20%. Tron 17%. Tezos down 18%. Crypto.com coin down 20%. Uh, Uh, Filecoin down 22%. I mean, you go down the list, there's a lot of these coins that have lost double digits 
uh, in the last week. You know, a lot of them getting hit today. The exception being Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is barely down, right? Bitcoin is down, I think, less than 1% on the week. As I am recording this podcast, Bitcoin is about 23400 which is a little off the highs, right? We got above 24000 a couple of times, but the lowest I've really seen Bitcoin sell off uh, during all this uh, crypto carnage is you know maybe the mid 22,000s, 22.6, So Bitcoin so far has held up. And in fact, if you look at uh, Bitcoin dominance, which is the percent of total crypto market capitalization uh, that is Bitcoin, it's been moving up. Now it's almost back up to 69%. Uh, so Bitcoin is holding on to value while a lot of other these cryptos are selling off because obviously if uh, Ripple is a security, well, what about all the others? I mean, there could be a lot of other cryptos that could be deemed securities and so people are selling. And what this is also doing though is creating, I believe, a false sense of confidence among the Bitcoin holders that this somehow validates Bitcoin and is actually good for Bitcoin because it's going to take out the altcoins, right? There are a lot of people who are excited about these other coins, right? They really, hey, the, this is now the season of altcoins. Altcoins are going to have another big run. And this is, uh, you know, taking the wind out of the sails of that narrative. And of course, you've got the other people out there, these Bitcoin maximalists that really love this because they've been saying, hey, it's Bitcoin is the only one that matters. All the rest of it is shit coins and none of them matter. You know, ironically, of course, there's really no difference. I mean, it's all nothing. It's all just digital fantasy. So to say that one coin is worthless, but Bitcoin isn't, the only difference really in my mind is the brand. I mean, Bitcoin has got a better known brand because it was the first mover. So it's got the greatest market share. But intrinsically, there's really no difference. I mean, yes, some of them are proof of work versus proof of stake or whatever you want to do it. I mean, at least Bitcoin has a theoretical limit on the number of Bitcoin, the 21 million, although there's some question as to whether the miners you know, if enough of them wanted to increase the quantity, if they could vote to do it. And I'm not really sure about that. Uh, but, you know, there are some of these coins that really, you know, don't have any kind of self-imposed limit. And so their, their, their supply can just grow indefinitely. So there are some differences. But, you know, whatever Bitcoin has that's unique to it can clearly be improved on with some uh, later uh, variation of the same concept. Because as I've said many times on my podcast, uh, never in the history of, you know, inventions has the first one been the best one. I mean, there's never been something that was invented that wasn't later improved upon uh, by somebody else. So to think that there won't be an improvement on Bitcoin, I think is extremely naive. But regardless of that, right now, it's these other altcoins that are feeling the ripple and they are being dragged down in sympathy to ripple. But I think if you are in Bitcoin and you think that, hey, Hey, you know, the regulators are not going to go after Bitcoin. Bitcoin is somehow sacrosanct. You better really think about this hard. Because first of all, there's a decent chance that Bitcoin is also going to be uh, categorized as a security. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, wait a minute, the government has already said it's a commodity, right? It's not a security. They've already defined Bitcoin as a commodity. And that's true. They have. But you know what? They can change their mind. Certainly, uh, the Biden administration, you have some new players in there. They may decide that the original uh, assessment of Bitcoin being a commodity was incorrect. Because after all, I mean, it's not really a commodity in that nobody uses it the way you use other commodities. The only thing that people use Bitcoin for is as a uh, means of getting rich. Everybody who buys Bitcoin does so with the expectation of making a profit. In fact, all of the marketing, all of the promotion of Bitcoin, even now, you know, as digital gold, I mean, it's not digital gold because you could use it to make digital jewelry. It's digital gold because people think it's going to appreciate. It's a hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against uh, monetary madness and quantitative easing. People are saying buy Bitcoin now because it's going to go to 500,000. It's going to go to a million. People don't market commodities 
with that perspective. I mean, some people might buy commodities because they want to hoard them because they think the price is going to go up. But there's a lot of people who buy commodities because they want to use the commodities. They need them for something. There is no need for Bitcoin. 100% of the market is people who are expecting uh, appreciation, which is half of the definition of a security, right? If you're buying something on the expectation of making a profit, that's half of what you need for something to be considered an investment contract and therefore security. Now, where the people in Bitcoin think they're safe, and this is a big difference between Bitcoin being decentralized and a currency like Ripple, is with Ripple, you have that company that basically creates all the ripples and sells all the ripples into circulation. With Bitcoin, there is no one company. There is no Bitcoin corporation. There's all these independent miners, right? And they go out and they mine Bitcoin, right? Or they don't really mine it. They 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 solve math formulas and then they create them. Um, but you have to spend the money to create a Bitcoin. You just don't have a bunch of them that you can market. So you have all these different miners who are out there creating Bitcoin. And so there's not one entity that you can point to that says, hey, this is where the entrepreneurial effort is. This is where the management is working to uh, enhance the value of the Bitcoin for the common enterprise, for everybody who owns Bitcoin. But I can easily see the SEC making an argument. I don't necessarily say that I would agree with the argument. There's a lot of things that the government does that I don't agree with, but that doesn't stop them from doing it because the government always tries to overreach, which is what they tried to do in my case by claiming that the Perthman certificates uh, was a security. I mean, if I hadn't pushed back and fought them and spent money on outside legal opinion, who knows? I mean, you know, I could have just rolled over and just accepted uh, their decree that it was a security, but they tried to claim it. So if they could try to claim that a warehouse receipt for gold is a security, they can easily claim that Bitcoin is a security. Now, why do I think they would do that? Or what would be their rationale? Well, number one, I said, clearly, everybody who owns Bitcoin uh, is buying it for appreciation. So there is a common uh, purpose, a common enterprise. All the people who own Bitcoin expect to benefit from the appreciation in the Bitcoin price. Now, is there a person or group of persons or companies whose entrepreneurial efforts or whose management is instrumental to the expectation of additional value or a higher price of Bitcoin or in driving that price? And I think the SEC can argue yes. First of all, you have all these miners whose uh, expending money to not only mine Bitcoin uh, into existence, but also to validate all of the transactions that take place. Somebody needs to validate those transactions. There needs to be a network. And every time they validate those transactions, they do earn a fee. But without the miners, there is no value to Bitcoin. You need this network they need to constantly spend money uh, on, on, on power and energy, which is why it's so expensive. They have to have the hardware. They have to reinvest. So you have this whole industry that is working to create value for Bitcoin. And without those efforts, uh, the Bitcoins wouldn't have any value. Then you also have all these exchanges that are working to create value by creating liquidity for the Bitcoin. So people have uh, places to trade. You have um, funds like Grayscale that are spending tremendous amounts of money to market and advertise Bitcoin for the purpose of getting people to buy it. And why are they trying to get people to buy it? Because they're telling them they're going to get rich if they buy it. They should sell their gold and they should buy it. This is the new gold that's going to make you rich. This is your ticket to Easy Street. Uh, but then, of course, you've got these whales, right? You've got a very small group of people. So it's not as small as Ripple, where it's just a couple of guys or one company. But you have a small number of people who control most of these Bitcoin. And my guess is they are working collectively behind the scenes uh, promoting, marketing, contacting reporters. I mean, really trying to drive the narrative and the hype for the sole purpose of getting the price of Bitcoin to go up. 
to benefit all of the people who already own Bitcoin and of course to benefit themselves because they own the most Bitcoin. So I think the government could argue that collectively you have a group of people who are working for the common good of everybody who owns Bitcoin and being paid. Remember, you know, everybody who owns Bitcoin, when the miners are, are rewarded with additional Bitcoin, that means that the total supply of Bitcoin increases, which means all else being equal, the value of everybody's Bitcoin is marginally reduced to accommodate the rewards that are being paid to the miners, not just for mining, but to validate uh, these transactions. But all this is being done for the common good of everybody who owns a piece of, of Bitcoin, any Bitcoin. And so I think the government could make the argument that Bitcoin is a security. Now, maybe they won't win the argument, but maybe they will. And the question is, well, who would they sue, right? Because you don't have, you know, Bitcoin incorporated like you have with Ripple. Well, I think they would go after an exchange, like maybe like a Coinbase. And they would just say, hey, you are selling or participating in the sale of unregistered securities. So now Coinbase is going to have to litigate, right? Just like I did. They're going to have to do something to prove that the government is wrong. And so that could require a big expenditure on their part to go into court and to argue that Bitcoin is not a security. Now, they may win, but they also may lose. So if I was going to just kind of handicap this whole thing, I would say that over the next few years, I say there's at least a 50-50 shot that the SEC alleges that Bitcoin is a security and they change their mind and they say it's not a commodity. Then I would say maybe there's a 50-50 chance that they win. And it ends up being ruled a security. So that would mean that there's a 25% chance, at least, that in the next few years, Bitcoin is going to be ruled a security, which means the price is going to crash. Because if you think it's expensive and cumbersome to deal with Bitcoin now, wait till you see how much more expensive it's going to be if it becomes a security, right? The cost of transacting is going to go through the roof. And it's already very expensive. I mean, Bitcoin is a horrible medium of exchange. That's why nobody uses it as a medium of exchange, because it stinks as a medium of exchange. And if it stinks now, it's going to stink worse if it's a security, which, of course, is also why it can't be a store of value. Because in theory, the only value that Bitcoin has is its use as a medium of exchange. But if it stinks as a medium of exchange, if every other medium of exchange is better, is cheaper. And by the way, even if Bitcoin is not ruled to be a security, the amount of regulation that we're going to have on all cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, is going to go way up. I mean, it's not a coincidence, I think, that the SEC waited until after the election to uh, bring this lawsuit against Ripple, because I do think that Donald Trump was predisposed to kind of leave the crypto industry alone because number one, I mean, he is kind of marketing himself as free market deregulation. So he didn't want to bring the heavy hand of government down on Bitcoin. But also, you know, there is a segment of Donald Trump's base, a libertarian, hard money, you know, free market oriented uh, part of the Trump base that also is into Bitcoin. And so Trump did not want to alienate his own base. You know, he wanted to get reelected. And so a lot of the people who may have voted for Trump because they, they don't like the Fed, they don't like big government. Well, these people also like Bitcoin. Well, I don't think Biden is going to have those concerns. Biden doesn't want the votes of people who don't want big government, who are free market oriented, who don't want the Federal Reserve. It's the opposite. Biden couldn't care less about alienating the Bitcoin base because they're not part of his base. And in fact, I think to the extent that members of the Biden administration actually believe some of this marketing nonsense from the Bitcoin community, right, that Bitcoin is going to uh, replace the dollar, that it's going to a million, that it's going to replace gold and sovereign bonds and, you know, everybody's going to be using Bitcoin, right? If People in the Biden administration actually believe that that's possible. I don't think it's possible at all, but they might actually believe it. If they believe it, 
Don't you think they're going to want to put a stop to it before it happens? Why would the government of the United States want to give up its control of the money supply, give up the sanctity of the U.S. dollar and the, you know, the seniorage gains? You know, we live beyond our means because we have the exorbitant privilege of issuing the world's reserve currency. If the world's reserve currency becomes Bitcoin and it replaces the dollar, well, then that that strikes right at the heart of the Washington power base. They, they don't want that. So... I think that Biden and his administration is going to go on the attack on cryptocurrencies because it represents everything that they're against. And they love regulation. I mean, they, you know, they want more regulation. They don't like the free market and they don't like anything that Bitcoin seems to stand for. You know, I, I, I think this is funny, too, because I talk about this on CNBC because, you know, they have you know, they have so much coverage on of Bitcoin today and yesterday, but really very little about the potential prospects of uh, this regulation hurting Bitcoin. I mean, perish the thought that they would, you know, they would utter anything negative about Bitcoin on CNBC, which really, again, they should rename it Crypto News Bitcoin. That's really what CNBC stands for. But there is a weird inconsistency, right? Because the people on CNBC, and the reason that they don't have me on is because they don't like what I stand for. I stand for, you know, freedom and capitalism and limited government. I'm anti-Fed. I'm anti-fiat money, anti these big deficits, right? They don't, they don't want me. They love the Federal Reserve on CNBC. They love the U.S. government. They think the U.S. market is fantastic. They've never liked gold, right? They've always thought gold was a bad investment, a stupid investment. So these same people who love the Federal Reserve, love the dollar, and hate gold, they all love Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is just digital gold. If you hate the actual gold, why would you love digital gold? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a digital representation of something that you don't even like. And how could you be so in love with the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government, yet so in love with Bitcoin at the same time? See, I guess the Bitcoin guys never bother to consider uh, this dichotomy or these discrepancies. Again, I just think it's all about the ad dollars and grayscale, and these guys have sold their soul. But think about the Democrats. The Democrats clearly don't like anything that Bitcoin stands for, right? Donald Trump at least pretended to like some of the things that the people in the crypto movement are in favor of. But the Biden administration is in favor of none of it, right? So crypto has kind of been in like regulatory purgatory from the Trump administration. Well, things are about to change. When Biden comes in, it's going to be a whole new world for crypto. And not that I'm happy about this. Look, I don't like government regulation. I think Bitcoin is going to fail on its own. I don't think it needs any help from the government, but I think the government is going to come in. This regulatory risk is huge. And what's happened in Ripple right now should be a wake-up call. Instead of thinking this is great news, right, because Bitcoin is immune and all of this regulations are just going to come down on Bitcoin's competitors, it is very naive to think that the Biden administration is going to take out all these other cryptocurrencies, but somehow leave Bitcoin alone, right? That somehow Bitcoin is sacrosanct. It's not, right? It's, it, it's, it's, it's going to go down with the rest of them because the Biden administration, they're not going to like anything about Bitcoin and they will do whatever they can to take it down, especially if they actually think it represents the threat that people in the Bitcoin community believe that it does, which is why I always said from the beginning that if Bitcoin doesn't die of natural causes, it will ultimately become a victim of its own success and be killed by the regulators. As a matter of fact, the Bitcoiners got really excited a couple of days ago because Elon Musk on his Twitter account tweeted out a very provocative uh, Bitcoin meme, which prompted Michael Saylor to reply to Musk by saying, hey, why don't you do your shareholders a favor and put like 100 million or well, I don't know how much of uh, Tesla's balance sheet into Bitcoin, like it would be great. And then Musk actually replied to that by tweeting back, is such a large transaction even possible? Now, of course, sure, it's possible because you got plenty of whales salivating to unload 100 uh, million worth of Bitcoin on Elon Musk and the Tesla shareholders assuming Musk was dumb enough to do something like that. 
But obviously, Sailor wasted no time in responding. Oh, sure, I can show you my playbook or share my playbook with you. This is going to be great. And so now all of a sudden, there's all these articles all over the internet about Elon Musk considering now moving a big chunk of Tesla's balance sheet into Bitcoin, which again advances the false narrative that all these institutions and corporations are converting their cash over to Bitcoin, which they are not. But more importantly, it ignores the obvious joking nature of the tweet. There is no way that Musk is serious. And in fact, if you look at his tweets, it's quite obvious that he's not being serious. In fact, later on, he came out with a tweet that said that Bitcoin is almost as BS as fiat. And so clearly he's joking. But hey, CNBC doesn't get the joke. They thought he was serious. I watched their coverage of Elon Musk's uh, tweeting about Bitcoin and they never mentioned it was a joke. They took the whole thing seriously. I mean, because they always want to spin everything positive. In fact, even today when Pompliano was on in, you know, part of the all day Bitcoin tout, Kevin O'Leary was there, who actually admitted he owns Bitcoin, but did discuss the fact that he didn't think any institutions would buy it and that no fiduciary would take the risk of buying it. And I completely agree. Uh, You're going to get sued eight ways from Sunday once this whole thing falls apart. So nobody wants to buy it as a fiduciary for anybody else. But then the guy, the host, tried to claim that fellow shark Mark Cuban that he had embraced Bitcoin because somehow he was maybe trying to make it so people could buy Mavericks tickets with Bitcoin. I'm not sure. But the the host was trying to claim that, yeah, you see, um, Cuban, he's adopting Bitcoin, which of course he's not doing. He's one of the more vocal skeptics of Bitcoin. And in fact, Kevin O'Leary had to remind him that Cuban had actually said that he sees more value in bananas than he does in Bitcoin, which of course is a true statement. Bananas actually have intrinsic value because you can eat them. The problem is they're not a good store of value because they don't have a very long shelf life. And by the way, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust actually got clobbered the last couple of days. It made a new high for the year earlier in the week at 32, and then it closed the week at 2735 which was down about 14.5%. In fact, it made the low on the week today, which was uh, 26.45 before it you know, regained a little bit of what it lost. Uh, but technically, this could be problematic. And in fact, the premium, which I think earlier in the week got close to 40%, I think it got up to about 38% premium people were paying to buy GBTC over what it would cost to just buy Bitcoin. And of course, you also pay that 2% a year. Uh, It's not really a management fee because they're not managing. It's a custodial fee. But now the premium is just under 20%. It's still a big premium, but not nearly as big as it was earlier in the week. And it could indicate that some of the demand is finally dissipating and this whole overhyped, you know, all the institutional investors are buying Bitcoin. I mean, CNBC has bought this narrative hook, line, and sinker. That's what everybody is on that page about, hey, this rally is real because all these institutions are buying Bitcoin. Yes, there are a handful of institutional investors who have announced that they've either bought or that they may buy Bitcoin, but the number is tiny. I mean, compared to all the institutional investments out there, this is so insignificant that you could just completely dismiss it. Yet it's being played up big time, certainly by everybody in crypto, which has a vested interest in in touting crypto, but also uh, by CNBC, which has a vested interest in touting it to keep the advertising gravy train going from Grayscale. Anyway, that's it. Have a uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. And uh, don't forget to uh, listen or watch my uh, special Christmas video message to all my followers. 